The reading of the word of the Lord um, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. Now the serpent was more subtle than the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, <laughs> and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the, of the Lord God, amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Unto Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miss Rosie. Good morning, everybody. We are going to kick off a new series today, and we're going to build it around this idea of questions. And as you know, asking questions, particularly in the faith realm, can be a very important and transformative kind of process. Uh, I was thinking, do you ever do this exercise where you try to rank order the questions you'll ask God when you meet God in heaven someday? Uh, I, I, I try to think about the different things I'm gonna ask God and they range from silliness, right? Like why can't the Chicago sports teams ever be good to like more personal, like one of the questions, I'm sincerely just curious about this, not that it like matters in the grand scheme of things, but I'm like kind of curious to ask God like when I became a Christian. <laughs> uh, I grew up in an environment where um, I was very scared of God, very scared of the idea of being in hell. So I used to, we used to call it the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is when you'd say, God, I confess of my sins and I invite you into my life for forgiveness. And I used to pray the sinner's prayer every single week just to be as absolutely certain as I could. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, it was like the very first time I prayed that or, I mean, the, the reality of it is like the sinner's prayer didn't mean anything to me in terms of relationship with God. It didn't mean anything to me in terms of union with God. It didn't mean anything to me in terms of how I actually live my life. It was just 100% not wanting to go to hell. And so it wasn't until age 22 that I prayed a more holistic kind of a prayer where I said, God, my life is full of yours. I surrender the tears. So I'm just kind of curious. I'm like, God, how'd you hear each one of those? Which one, what, what, what do those matter? Yeah. I have quite these jogging me for you. I have questions. You, you know what my biggest communal, communal relating question is? I, I really want to understand what God was thinking when God came up with marriage. No, 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 that, that sounds cynical. I'm not actually cynical about marriage. I think marriage is a wonderful thing. I totally see why it's so important. The, the, the thing that's odd is that most people get married really young, right? And I like when I ask God, like, what were you thinking? Like, what two 22-year-olds can possibly be 
in a good enough position to make a, a decision like that, right? Like for us, God, it, I don't know the science. Isn't our brain not even formed till 25 or something? Isn't that like that, right? Like, how am I going to be 22 with a like three-quarter form brain trying to make a decision for this? I mean, it just the whole thing seems a little bit flawed. And of course, in older societies, it was like even younger than that, right? So that, that's just one of those like philosophical questions I have for God. Like, just, just curious, like what you were thinking with that whole thing, right? So I got lots of questions. Of course, the big ones, evil in the world, suffering in the world, how to make sense of that, not being taking those light at all. Like just lots of questions, right? So there is a really valuable exercise in surfacing our own questions that we have for God and making space for those, and those can lead to really transformational places. Uh, we're going to do an angle in this series that, I, for whatever reason, I have never thought about this angle before it came up in our staff over the last couple of months. It actually came up in the youth planning that as Benjamin was preparing for what they would do this fall. Um, it started with what would be their questions, but then it flipped and started asking the question, started asking a different way. What if we don't focus so much on what our questions are for God? What if we focus on what God's questions are for us? I have like just never thought about it that way. That seems so basic, but I had never thought about it that way. And it just opens up a different way of interacting with ideas of faith, right? Instead of, and of course, again, it's valuable, the starting point being the questions you have for God, those matter too. But what a fascinating way to think about it, kind of traveling through scripture. And that's what we're going to do um, over these weeks leading up till Thanksgiving and Advent. What is that, seven, eight of them, something like that. Um, we're just going to kind of make our way through um, big questions that God asks of people. Uh, big questions that come from the heart of God towards us. And trusting, hoping that there's something uniquely formative about kind of not starting with our questions, though there's time and place for that, but actually starting with the questions that God has for us and using that as a way to understand God's heart better, what God longs for for us, what God is inviting us into. So, yep, yep, for a diving into that for the next seven, eight weeks as we look at questions that God asks. So we will start, we start today, as Miss Rosie read, we'll start today with the, what's chronologically the first one in Scripture, but I would also strongly contend is also without question the most foundational one. I would say this question that we look at today is without question the most foundational one. Every question we look at from this point forward builds on top of this one. Um, yeah, I almost feel like you can't overstate this question. I think how you interact with this question from God in Genesis chapter 3 says so much about how you understand who God is, says so much about how you understand who you are, says so much about how you understand the way God has designed us and designed us to relate with God and each other. I mean, the, the, the question is just filled with uh, deep meaning in terms of how God thinks about us, how God wants us to respond to us. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. And if you're joining virtually, this is the first Sunday, so this is Communion Sunday, so please make sure you have your elements ready. This, we are all going to want to receive the gift of communion, I think, after kind of reflecting on this question. So uh, let's go to this passage. I mean, I, we just got to acknowledge the obvious. And this passage we just read, I mean, this is one of the most um, rich, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, I mean, this stuff everything about the human story, everything about the God story is all in these chapters. So there's there's a dozen critical things happening that we're going to kind of just pass on the way to the question. Uh, but the, the big scope of this, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 leading to this, is of course this beautiful cosmic story of God bringing creation to be and depicting the different environments, the different parts of creation, the way that we all work together in a sense of shalom. And then as we move into chapter 3, uh, the camera's really starting to zone in on the relationship between human beings and God. And that's what I want us to be thinking about as we approach this question. The relationship between human beings and God. And kind of the critical things to know up to this, I mean, you know this story, although 
I just feel like you could read Genesis 1 through 4 over and over and over again. You will never get to all the things. I listened to probably 40 hours of podcasts over the last two weeks on Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. I just, it just never gets old to me reflecting on the deep and amazing and mysterious nuances to this. But anyway, if, if we think about the story of God and human beings, what we clearly see in Genesis 1 and 2, and it, we actually see it here in 3, it just now comes in a new way, way, that the story of Genesis is that God has created human beings in God's image, and God has created us to live in deep and beautiful union with God. Uh, uh, the depiction of the relationship between God and people, and this, this starts to get what's so unique. There's a lot of themes in the Genesis story that you see in other kind of religions and other kind of creation stories, but where it starts to get so unique to how the Bible talks about it is that God creates human beings with this intention, with this design, with this desire to be in deep personal union and connection with God. Right. <clears throat> in fact, uh, chapter three gives a nod to one of the really cool images in this. Um, although kind of a bunch has happened now, it says that God comes to take a walk with them in the cool of the day. Right. Which is this. Uh, words don't do it justice. You need you need artists to kind of get to the to the beauty of what's being depicted there. Right. This notion that God and human beings were so close. Right. The relationship was so tender, so intimate, so connected, that in addition to the just all the time kind of talking and communing, there would be this kind of dedicated, set aside, uh, lovely encounter each day where God and the human beings would walk together, enjoy the cool breeze, enjoy conversation, enjoy just being in each other's presence, right? The real clear picture we get in Genesis 1, 2, 3 is that God, amongst the much larger cosmic story, when it comes to the relationship between God and human beings, God has created human beings to be in God's presence. And to say it even more strongly, because I think this goes past even a lot of us who believe, I mean, this is state the obvious, people who don't believe probably don't assume this, but even those who, who would think, who are trying to live into the Christian life, I don't know that we believe this. God, God really is depicting a picture in Genesis 1, 2, 3, that we flourish and thrive most when we are in the presence of God. All right, now that sounds basic to say at one level, but I just don't think that's what a lot of us think. I think a lot of us think that God wants us to obey the rules, keep the commands, do what God wants us to do in this world, be good boys, good girls. But that doesn't get anywhere near what Genesis 1, 2, 3 is saying. Genesis 1, 2, 3 is saying, we do best when we are inside the presence of God. When we live with a sense of wonder and freedom and connection and intimate encounter with God, that is the, that's the raw material. That's the ingredients for human flourishing, right, is when we're inside the presence of God which then makes chapter three really significant because um, there's this enormous disruption, right? We're not gonna get into the whole thing of the serpent and the temptation, all those, those are really critical as well, but we'll take us down two many different paths, we'll just kind of keep following this track of the relationship between God and human beings that eventually leads to this question. So there's this huge disruption, right? God says, all of this is yours. I want you to live abundantly. I want you to flourish. I want you to enjoy my creation. I want you to enjoy each other. I want you to enjoy me. Of course, the one thing, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Inevitably, of course, Adam and Eve eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, right? So that takes us to uh, what's the point of the story where we're really trying to come in, where God asks this question. And so here, here's why I want to pause, and I want to, I want to, I'm going to share how I have come at it, and I'm hoping that that's going to help you kind of really surface how you think of it. So um, we're at the point of the story where God has created human beings for flourishing, for intimate connection. We're at the point of the story where Adam and Eve have disrupted that, have broken that, have, I mean, if there is such a thing as a biggest kinds of sins, they commit the biggest kind of sin, right? I mean, the one thing they're not supposed to do, they don't, they don't do. 
what happens next in the story? Or, or to ask it more, more even specifically, how, how do you think of God thinking of you when you commit a treacherous sin? How do you imagine or picture God's response to you when you commit a treacherous sin? When you, when you, I mean, there's all different ways to think of this stuff. Sometimes you do things without even knowing it. But in this case, they knew it was right and wrong. They did it anyway. They totally break the relationship with God. So let, let me, let me, I, I just have this vivid memory. So I'm, I started preaching when I was in my mid-20s. I went into ministry when I was 24, and I was around 25 when I started preaching um, more regularly. So I still have this vivid memory the first time I was assigned this passage to preach um, in, in, in a specific kind of environment. And so as I was prepping for it, now there was a whole thing, a whole bunch of things I was not aware of then, but I can see them so clearly now. My view of God, my view of my relationship with God was totally surfaced by the story in my view of God and my view of how God relates to me did not match as well with the stories I thought it did. So let me say it a different way. Um, I knew this story, so I thought, super well, I'm a pastor's kid. I've been in church since I was born. You know, these, these stories are like, got these on lock, right? I felt like I could tell everything about the Garden of Eden, the fall, Cain and Abel. I, fe- I felt like I knew all those. So I came up with the outline for this sermon really quickly. So when it was my turn to preach this, I was preaching this passage. Here's my three-point outline. God set the environment and the rules that the people were to follow within God's environment. That's the first point. God created this thing. We're supposed to obey the rules. Two, human beings screwed up God's plan. Three, human beings reap the consequences of breaking God's rules. Now, that was a reflection of just almost completely how I thought of God. I thought of God, I hoped God was more than this, but really functionally, and to this day, I still fight against this. I really thought of God mostly as a disciplinarian, mostly as a rule creator, and we're the rule keepers, mostly as somebody who kind of in a Ten Commandment kind of way is watching us to make sure that we keep those. To go even deeper than that, the view of God that, and there's a part of this that's right, but it's really incomplete if it's not whole, but the part of God that I was taught over and over and over is that God is, there's this sacredness when we talk about God, there's this sense of holiness when we talk about God, there's this sense of reverence, and I'm not diminishing those things, I just think they have to be held in kind of the largest possible frame where the foundation's always love. But God is, you know, we need to have this reverence, there's this God of holiness, and there's this sense that to sin, to disobey, to break the rules of God is just the ultimate sign of disrespect of God's holiness and God's character. And that we just need to live with this ready awareness that when we sin, when we commit spiritual treason, when we, when we, when we violate our relationship with God, we need to just live with this intense sense of awareness, appropriate sense of guilt, remorse, and just take really seriously that that's kind of how God's designed us. So that's coming out in my in my outline for this, that God's created the playing field, so to speak, with the rules. We were supposed to keep it. We don't keep it. We're punished. But here's even more. In the, we're punished. So I went, God created Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve break it, just like we all break it. Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden as a result. So that was my outline. So fortunately, I was not allowed to just preach those without getting feedback. So I had to submit it to kind of the more head preachers and make sure that it was uh, seen as theologically accurate and then also just get feedback on how to preach it. So I'll never forget this. The, uh, you could see the person who I was submitting this to was very troubled <laughs> by my approach to it. And, and he said, you know, there's a, one part that I'm not going to get to this yet, but the way you depict God, the way you depict the Garden of Eden doesn't feel very whole um, in this outline you have. He said, but let's just start with the basics. Your outline's not accurate. 
Say, wait. Said, you're doing, God created the rules, Adam and Eve broke it, then they get cast out. That's the response. That's not accurate. You need to go back to the story and read it again. I was like, what are you talking about? I know this story inside and out. I've been doing this since flannel graphs in like second grade. Like, I know, I know this story um, inside and out. So I went back and I was like, what is he talking about? So I went back, God created, you know, now I don't, that's not how I would say it now, is God created the playing field with the rules. I don't think that's like the holistic, most holistic depiction of it. But I was like, I, th- I feel like I can confidently stand behind that. Second, that's Adam and Eve break the rules. I'm like, how can you? You challenge that, of course. Adam and Eve he ate off the tree. And then my third point was to get cast out of the garden. But then I read the story and I realized, oh, but that's not actually, that's not actually a sequence of how it happens, is it? Um, I was so rooted in a view of God that is punitive and a God of vengeance, a God who is so upset with human beings for their sin that I actually skipped over enormous parts of the story on what I called the response, which actually that's not, the, I think the, kind of Eden ending as it was is not about retribution ultimately, um, but I, I'm going to put that one to the side. Just even just sticking to the sequence, even if even if you use my limited, God creates the playing field, they break it, here's the punishment, they get cast out. That's not what happens next, is it, in the story. What happens next is the, <laughs> is the title of the series, that God has questions. Now we come back to the story. God has created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve have sinned. This is why I say it's the most foundational question, because how we think of God responding to us in our sin is arguably one of the most important things we'll ever come to believe about God because this dictate because you're going to sin every day. <laughs> That's the bottom line. So how you understand God relating to you in your sin is, if not the most thing, important thing, it's one of the most important things you could possibly believe about God, right? So if you've got your Bibles, go back in again and like let's 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 go through that sequence. Uh, yeah, and if you don't mind bringing up the, the passage again. So going. Uh, uh, Let's go to verse 8. So uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. We see before that their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They sewed fid leaves together. Verse 8. The man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as God was walking, which isn't my main point, but if I just pause there for a second, it's kind of a cool visceral image, isn't it, that you can feel and hear when God is coming (laughs) and uh, how that was kind of a daily, like, ooh, God's here. I mean, just can you imagine being so free that you just kind of heard when God was coming when, and when the singular purpose of that was just to like spend some time together. Like, ooh, Yahweh God is coming. <laughs> the triune God is coming. Cool. It's time for us to hang out and go for a walk. They hear God walking as they would have every day at this time. But now their response is different. They hide from God among the trees of the garden. And here's the question, the first question we get in Scripture, the most foundational question. Yahweh God calls out and says, what are the three words, the three-word question? Where are you? Where are you? These three, quest- these three words form the first question that God ever asks. Where are you? Is that, is there any way that you can, I can see why this pastor says you got the story wrong. Can you possibly, and even if you're committed to trying to see God as punitive, which I don't know why you'd want to be committed to that, is there any way to hear that question as a punitive kind of a question? Right? Does that sound like punishment for God to walk up and say, hey, I'm here. Where are you all at? I'm here like I'm here every single day. Where are you all at? There's like nothing punitive sounding about that, is there? There's nothing judgmental sounding about that. In fact, it's really not any different than what would have happened the day before that or the day before that. And again, this may be more exaggerated for me because I'm, I so fight against the notion of a punitive God, but kind of reading through the books of history, I think this is a pretty consistent human struggle, so I think this is in all of us. But I remember 
when I realized, it was not, I, so here's what I realized. I realized in my mind, I amended the story, which is crazy. In, the, in my mind, it went, God created it, Adam need to disobey, they get cast out because of that. I totally edited out this whole part in my mind, not on purpose, but just I was that sure that the next thing that happens, you violate God's rules and God's purpose, and the next thing that happens is you get swatted, right? You get punished, you get Karma comes in hard, right? Life, your car starts breaking down. You can't pay your bills. Um, all your relationships turn on you. The devil gets through. Like all these things were how I thought of it. Like you violate God, and what happens next is the God, the holy God, who told you what the rules are. That God, that God's gonna swatch you. And so when I came back to this, I like so first I was just really uncomfortable because I thought. How did I miss this? And I'm not saying this is what happens to all of you, but I think this is where it goes. Like, rather than the story forming us, our own views of God, oftentimes we push on to Scripture and we can't even hear what's being said because we're so under the weight of these false views of God. So I was wrestling with that. And even though some part of me wanted to believe this, another part of me just couldn't. And so here's the next voice that happened to me as I was wrestling with this first time I ever preached this, even though I knew this story well. The next thing that happened to me was I heard this voice that was often in my church settings where um, one of the most, one of the fiercest criticisms that would come from the circles I was in is any church group that took, t- t- took sin lightly. All right, this notion that if you take sin lightly, that was just the natural expression of how I've been taught about God to trifle with sin was the word that would often be used. To trifle with sin or take sin lightly was considered a very serious offense. So I thought, I'm clearly trifling with sin right now. I'm not taking, the fact that I want to believe God comes just like God came the day before and that God's question is, where are you? Not, here's the wrath that's going to be experienced. I'm like, this has got to be me trifling with sin. So I started reading like crazy, really trying to get a more whole view of this. And I wish I could remember, I can't find the guy's name anymore. It was a desert father, so it was like hundreds and hundreds, centuries of years ago. But he wrote a commentary on this. And I remember the opening line, he said, there is a way for us to read the account of the fall in Genesis 3 where we really minimize the impact of sin. I thought, okay, this guy's speaking like language that I know. So I dove all the way in. I'm like, that's right. I think this is what I'm at risk of right now as I interact with the story of minimizing the, the risk of sin. And so the guy, this monk went on to say, sin is very serious and we need, to really, we need to really contend with the impact of sin. Yes, we do. But then here's what he said, and this forever changed me. This to this day still animates in, in the most significant ways how I think of God. Here's what, that, here's what the monk said. He said, but we consistently misunderstand what the impact of sin was in the garden. Because so many of us believe God is at God's core punitive, we think that the result of sin in Genesis 3 is that God turns God's back on human beings. That's how most of us just intrinsically understand sin, that sin causes God to somehow turn God's back on human beings. Or to say it a different way, that the impact of sin is such that God no longer unconditionally loves us, that the love is based on conditions that I love you as long as you're keeping the rules, to use this example of the garden, but if you break those, I'm withholding my love. This guy said, that's how most people experience their parents, so it's understandable why you'd think that's what God would do too, that when I do something wrong, my love is, the love that I need is now, now feels conditional. Uh, to, to say different, say, say, keep saying the same thing a different way, that most of us think about the impact of sin is that it alienates us from God, that God is no longer easy to find, and we have to somehow be restored in such a manner that we can present ourselves as acceptable to God and to be re-accepted. He's like, this is how most of us think about the impact of sin, 
that it impacts the way God sees us. And then here's what that does amongst it. That doesn't make sense. Now go back and read the story and ask, does Adam and Eve's sin do anything, anything to change God's posture towards them? I, I, seriously, I think this like is a breakthrough when you see this for the first time. I mean, it just does not affect one single thing in the way that God reaches out to Adam and Eve. The fact that God comes at the same time, that, that God wants to have this intimate walk in the garden, that God is asking, where are you? I'm here, where are you? Shows that nothing changes on God's side because of sin. And yet the Genesis story is very clear that sin has an impact, and that's it. it's in the verse before. What happens when Adam, and Eve sin, when Adam and Eve sin? It has a huge impact. What happens? It says the way they see is no longer the same. Adam and Eve now see themselves as naked, see themselves with a sense of shame, and become scared of God in a way that they didn't used to be scared of God. Every day up till that point, when they heard the Lord coming, it was since it was expected, it was exciting, it was the apex of their relationship where they got to connect intimately, enjoy the presence of God. It was just the natural way they did it. When they heard the voice of God coming before, they were never scared, ever scared. But now, after their sin, they see themselves differently and they see God differently. Here's what that desert monk said in, in, in as plain of the way that I can say, and this is, this is where I, this is the kind of main thing I want to say. This desert monk said, sin does not change the way God sees you Sin changes the way you see God. And that's deep. Sin does not change the way God sees you. Sin changes the way you see God. That is why this story is so important. That is why I call it foundational. You know, the word Genesis means genes, right? It's like, I, I really do believe the main thrust of what the Genesis early stories are is to show us what we're like. And I... I always, like, I always like getting to the answer as fast as I can. If you want a cheat code of knowing how God, what God is like and what we're like, this gets us there so quickly. And so let me, uh, I, and we're now officially kind of getting ready here to receive the gift of communion, but let, let's use this story as a way to just say this as clearly as possible, what the Genesis story tells us about who God is, what the Genesis story tells us about who we are, and how that must inform and transform the way we move forward. So let, let me just do two passes. What, it, what do we see as true of God? What is his true of, of us? So the first thing we see of God, I hope, I, I, this changes everything. Like maybe you don't believe it. You need to believe it. Maybe you kind of believe it, but don't believe it all the way. Maybe you believe it in your head, but you don't really believe it in the center of your being. But let's, here's the first thing. God has created you to be in intimate relationship with God. That's the whole of the design story when it comes to the interaction between God and us. God has created you to be in intimate relationship with God. Let me say the same thing in a slightly different way. You will flourish and thrive to the degree that you are stepping into that loving relationship with God. You will struggle and fragment to the degree you are pulling away from that relationship with God. I'm trying to, I keep making this more worded than I mean to. This is the first thing I'm trying to say. God has designed you. God has designed me. God has designed us. God has actually designed us to live an intimate, connected, vibrant union with God. Like, in the like most pure version of who you are. In the most pure version of who you are, you are happiest, most alive, most flourishing, most thriving when you are in that, and now you're gonna start to hear language we use all the time here. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? John 10, the voice of the shepherd who calls to us. That's because these are all building on the, on the Garden, of, uh, Garden of Eden. God has created you in the purest form to live in vital, vibrant, intimate relationship with God. I believe with all my being, this is no longer about 
I do not see this that God is primarily punitive or God of vengeance or God. God wants God's children to know God. And that is what informs what I do as a pastor here. It's what informs every conversation I have with people outside of church. I truly, truly believe that's the core of my being, that until and unless someone is living from that place where they're in union with God, they will not know the deepest forms of flourishing in vital living. I believe that with all my being. So that was a long way of saying the first one. What is it? What's true about God? God has created us to live in deep in union with God. Now, these are going to sound negative, but they're negative on the way to positive. What's true about us? Here's what's true about us. We see this in the story, and we see this through history. What's true about us is even when we get a taste of the goodness of God, it'll be just a matter of time before we self-sabotage it. Even when we live all the way in the center of it, I'm not even talking about those of us who have doubts and aren't even sure that, I'm talking about even those who have been all the way on the inside for a moment, even those of us who have experienced deep union with God for a moment, for a day, for a month, even those who experience deep intimacy with God, we will inevitably self-sabotage it. It is, it is not maybe, it is not if, it is always when. We will self-sabotage. It's one of the really important parts of this story, right? It couldn't have been, the deck couldn't have been more clearly set than this, right? Everything is good. There's just this one thing you can't do. I mean, this gets into a very specific theological question. I've had people ask me before, that's not fair that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, that they're the ones who did it. I didn't do that. It's like, that's not the, the point is that we would all do the same thing. We all do do the same thing. Even when we experience the fullness of God, we inevitably self-sabotage it. Now, why is that important to say? Because it doesn't mean it's giving license. Well, then go ahead and self-sabotage. You can do anything. That's, of course, missing the point. But the point is, if, if not if, when we self-sabotage, that's actually when we're most vulnerable. Um, to the lies of the evil one. We self-sabotage. We do what they do. We, uh, we start to collapse, and um, the shame gets so intense, which gets to the next one. So let me come back here. First thing about God, God has designed us for intimate union with God. First thing about us, we will inevitably self-sabotage it, even when we've experienced it. Second thing about God, that is these two just going together, God's original and hopeful design force is that we live in union with God, and after we self-sabotage it, this is the question God will ask you every single time. Where are you? The second thing is that God will pursue you even after you self-sabotage it. God will come get you every time if you'll allow yourself to be gotten every time. And this is not what most of us believe. Most of us have a hundred different kind of versions of God that don't match this, but to, to use the language of that monk, it sin does not impact the way God sees us. It sees the way we impact, it impacts the way we see God. So what's true of God? God has designed us for this. When we self-sabotage it, God will always come and get us every time. This question, where are you, assumes that God is there, that God is hopeful and longing for you to be back, and that God is inviting you back in again. This is the opposite of a God who's playing hide and seek and we have to reform ourselves in such a way to be made right with God. That is such a different way to view it to think I've got to get myself right in order to be able to go back with God as opposed to seeing it as like I'm doing whatever I'm doing, hiding in shame, validating, blaming somebody, you know, all the things that we do when we're in that kind of spiral. And the God who always comes to us and says, I'm here. Where are you? Those three words, I'm telling you, those three words change everything. To truly trust that not even at our mountaintop moment, but in our worst moments, that the God of the universe is walking towards us, moving towards us, saying, where are you? And then I was going to say, we hide, we blame, we do all that. That's, it, it's a negative portrayal in, in, in a sense that our instinct is not to move towards what is right, 
But the whole point of this is that God has created us for this. Even when we screw it up, God keeps coming back after us. Even when we hide, even when we blame, even when we validate, God just keeps coming back after us. And I, I believe to the core of my being that there's not a more transformational message than that. That the same God who created you before you were, before, before this earth even came into being, that's what I believe. As God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart. I think that's true of each one of us, right? Um, the God who has created you for intimacy with God, for union with God, knows you're going to screw it up. And when you do, God comes right back after you again. Which then starts to become how I think about, this is how I think about spiritual maturity. Um, I think for spiritual maturity, for myself, is that I, I try to like, like if I self-sabotage four times a day, I'm going to try to like decrease that to three times a day. Or two times a day, or one time a day. Or when I self-sabotage and God comes after me, I'm not going to hide for as long as I used to hide. Or I'm not going to blame as much as I used to blame. Or I'm not going to try to validate my mistakes. I'm just going to more quickly say like, yeah, that was dumb as... And uh, it's, it's, it's me again giving in to like my sinful side that even when I know what I need most, I go the opposite direction. That's why I've always loved that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. That's Genesis 3, right? Like uh, I'm so prone to go the opposite direction that I know I need to go. So for me, that's spiritual maturity. Not, not that I'll stop self-sabotaging because um, I think in little and big ways we continue self-sabotage, but that I'll more quickly get right-sized and go, I know who God is right now. I know what God is saying to me. I know what God is asking. God's asking me three words right now. Daniel, where are you? Get back home. Right? This is what you're designed for. Stop, 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 stop. It's not so much the vengeful God that's going to swap me. It's the God who cares about me. It's like, that's not what you're just, please stop doing that for your sake, for the people you're hurting, for my, like, the whole thing's a mess when you just stop. Where are you? Come back. Okay, I'm back. Back with the God who has created me and loves me and has built me to be in union with God. That's what's true who God is. That is what's true of us. We self-sabotage, we mess up, and then when we do it, we hide, we blame, we validate. This is where communion is such good news. I mean, this is, we're not just reenacting Jesus' death when we receive communion together. We're remember, Jesus said the main word is to remember. When we receive communion, we're to remember. Right? Remember what? This is, the, this, this is remember that this is the story of a God who's created us for union, of a people who sabotage that with God and with each other, and of a God who tries to restore, who calls on us to restore, of a people who say, yes, not through my own self-reformation efforts, not through my good deeds, not through me saying a bunch of Hail Marys, not, not any of these. It, 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 it's about tr simply trusting who God is and trusting that voice that says, where are you? And so as we prepare, and if you're one of the folks uh, sharing the communion table, if you can come on up as I kind of get ready to lead us in a prayer. Um, for communion, how if you're newer here, I know communion can always be a little unnerving knowing what's exactly happening. So when we engage in this on a monthly basis of remembering, we have folks from our body who distribute it. So we just do two lines, and you can come up and the line. You just simply receive. The posture here is just receiving. So you'll receive the bread. You'll receive a cup. You'll hear some words of blessing from a person. And then if you would just bring it back to your seat, and then we'll receive. We'll do a confessional, and we'll see, receive it together. Uh, but let's think of those two words, remember and receive. Right, so as we get ready to experience this, we are remembering the story of a God who's created us for union. We're remembering the story that we are sinners who are in desperate need of being restored, of being brought back into relationship with God. We remember this is a God whose first and foundational question is, where are you? Because I'm right here. 
right? So if you're, well, let me get, I'm feeling the need to say this so clearly. If you are not feeling like you can come, can I, can I say this kindly but just so directly? If you don't feel like you can come all the way into the presence of God, if you don't feel that you can fully delight in the God who forgives you of your sins, who longs to restore you, who longs to be in a loving relationship, if there's any part of you right now that can't step into that, I don't mean this meanly, I certainly don't mean this in a guilt or shame way, but it's, it's the impact of sin on you. Right? That's not God saying you can't come in. That's some voice telling you you can't come in. That's why this is so important. God is trying to completely clear the deck to make this so straightforward. Like God is saying, I'm here, where are you? That's it. That's all you need to know. The same God that you're experiencing, Genesis 1 and 2, where we walk together in the cool of the day every single day, that's still me, that's still where I am. Where are you? Right? So the gift of communion is for us to say, I see you there, God, and I'm allowing you to pull me back in. That's the gift of receiving this, right? I mean, does it sound too simple? Obviously, yeah, that's always why people say grace is so hard to wrap our minds around. It's not cheap. It's not insignificant. It's not flippant. It's the most serious thing that there is. A God who's created you, a God who grieves when you time and time again sabotage that, and yet a God who continues to pull back in. So right now in this moment, there's not a person in this place that shouldn't be able to fully say, I'm right with God, I'm loved with God, I'm brought in by God, because that's who God is, and that what, that's what God calls us to. So join me in prayer. In fact, let's, let's stand if, if we can, and then you can come grab the elements after this. Well, let me pray for us as we posture our hearts in this way. Uh, God, what a beautiful moment this is. Virtually together, a bunch of people in this room together. As a community, we're saying, we're here to remember together who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. And you could not have more emphatically declared what's true of you, that you are the God who's created us in your image. You are the God who's created us for intimate. I want to stress it. In, intimate relationship with you. We're not just foot soldiers who are keeping your rules. We are beloved, right? The, 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 the way that you frame this as a loving parent, a loving mother, a loving father, us as beloved children, this is the framing. You have created us to live in this intimate connection with you. And when we distress that, when we disrupt that, when we self-sabotage that, when we just outrightly reject it and rebel against that, the whole range, we understand that has impact on us. We understand that has impact on others. We, we don't take that lightly. That's why we start every confession with forgive us for the ways we've harmed ourselves, harmed our neighbors. We, we don't take it lightly. But here's what we're not going to let happen. We are not going to let ourselves wonder who you are and where you are. For in the same way that you declare in the opening pages of Scripture, it's that this is who you are. Right now you stand here and you say, I'm here. That same God who created you for connection, that same God who created you for love, I'm here. Where are you? And so as we prepare to receive the gift of communion, we are going to emphatically answer, I'm here too. I'm coming out from behind the trees. I'm going to set aside this shame spiral that's got me buried in the ground. I'm going to stare in the eye the questions that say, the lies that say, I'm not worthy of being restored. I'm not truly loved. I'm not as smart as those other Christians. I'm not as holy as those other Christians. 
God doesn't really actually see me. We're going to see all those, and we're going we're gonna to leave them behind, and we're going to step in with you and say, here am I. So may we all experience that together, God. May every moment of this, receiving the elements from those who are distributing them, the prayerful time together, the listening to the music, may all of it illuminate this question of you asking, where are you? And give us the boldness, the freedom to say, here am I. I want to be home with you. Let's come receive the elements now and bring them back to our seats. As you come back to your seats, if you don't mind, let's let's stand together for the corporate confession. The word confess simply means to tell the truth. So when we do this, uh, we're, we're declaring what is true. We're trying to line ourselves up with what is true. So we're going to read this together, um, this corporate confession. So if you would join me and read along with me. God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess that like our first human ancestors, we dwell in a world of beauty and goodness, a world made for our enjoyment and faithful stewardship. Like Adam and Eve, we are breathed into existence to be in loving relationship with all creation. And yet, we confess also that like our ancestors, we are easily deceived. We confess that we are tricked by the schemes of death. We are swayed by lies of power and swindled by the allure of wisdom. In shame, we hide from you and so too from ourselves. But you are right here, O Lord, inviting us to come out of hiding, neither for reprimand nor rebuke, but for relationship for communion. Quiet the voices of shame and deceit that we may live in the light with you. Amen. Now as we hold these elements together, boy, I've been thinking, let's start with the bread. Jesus, when at the Last Supper gave them, broke the bread, said, this is my body. Uh, one of the profound images, we, it was further than we read, but one of the profound images at the end of chapter 3, uh, again, first God says, where are you? God restores them. God takes the hides of animals and covers them, which becomes an emblem of what Christ's death and resurrection is going to be. When we receive the gift of bread, we are remembering in a way that's like hard to like even hold, right? So the first death that ever happens in the garden is an innocent animal that dies so that Adam and Eve can be restored. And that's pointing towards Jesus, who's going to die so that we can be restored. So as we get ready to receive this gift of bread, let us remember, Jesus said, this is my body, right? This is what will clothe you, what restores you. So we are not playing around when we do this. Let us receive the gift of the bread, remembering that we are clothed by Jesus. And then Jesus says, he will spill his blood as, an, as the greatest act of self-giving love that has ever been seen in the world. And so we remember the God who loves us so much that God would give God's very self. Let us receive the gift of communion. And now let's listen for the words of God and sing back in corporate worship together. I'd like to invite you to really lean into your imaginations for this benediction uh, in terms of how you carry this with you. Reference this during the receiving of communion together. But one of the uh, final images in verse 21, it says that God made garments 
for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And so there's something very spiritual about that. The question was, where are you? And the garments are a clear declaration from God that you are restored back with me. Uh, but one of the things that really jumps out to me, and this is where you have to use your imagination because you don't have physical, but it was so physical as well, right? It was a fit, like, garments wasn't an imagined thing. They actually literally had garments over them, right? And these garments were meant to be a tactile reminder of who they were, right? Every time they looked at that garment, it was a reminder that I am God's forgiven, I am God's beloved, I am God's children, I am the one who walks with God every day. And so it should be unsurprising that in Luke 15, when Jesus tells the most expansive story about God restoring in the story of the prodigal sons, you remember when the younger prodigal comes back and the father runs from the house to greet him, do you remember what the father does to the older brother? He puts a garment over him. He surrounds him in a garment, which is a symbolic act, saying you're restored to me and to the community, but actually was physical as well, right? When he walked around, when the son walked around with that robe, it was a tactile way to fight against, I love how Benjamin wrote that in the confessions, those lies of shame and deceit that try to subsume us. Uh, the garment is a way to galvanize yourself to fight against the lies that would tell you elsewise. So I wish we actually had physical garments. That's why I say you have to use your imagination. But at least in the spiritual, can we walk with this? Can we remember that communion is not where it happens, but it is a remembrance. Communion is a remembrance that the Lord God has clothed you. That like the father and the prodigal sons, Lord God's not even just waiting for you at home. The Lord God comes running at you full speed the moment you show the slightest openness to coming back home and meet you three-quarters of the way down the path and then cover you in this garment. And this garment is meant to be something that reminds us who we are to God and to each other. So let's go with that remembrance of the God who not only loves us, not only asks where are you, but clothes us with a garment to concretely remind us that we indeed are fully restored, fully at one with God. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.